0: day on against the grain? Imagine for a moment the mass euphoria, the collective jubilation, when nations in Africa, Asia, and Latin America broke free from colonialism. Now consider what's happened to the Third World and its secular egalitarian agenda. I'm C.S. You'll hear from Vijay Prashad, author of the landmark volume, The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World, coming right up. And this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Struggles for national liberation, for self-determination, were victorious in nation after nation as colonial powers like Britain, France, and Portugal were ejected, were sent packing in the mid-20th century. How momentous, how exciting it was, these countries, and especially Asia and Africa, that could start, they hoped, anew backed by empowered, enthused populations. Newly freed countries didn't keep to themselves. They banded together, formed groupings like the Non-Aligned Movement, and came to a consensus on a platform that Vijay Prashad calls the Third World Project. Then, as the years passed, things happened, and the social forces of secularism and socialism, which Prashad calls the best traditions of Third World nationalism, withered. Why? What post-colonial dreams were dashed, and by what forces, internal and external? By what process was the Third World, as Prashad wrote, assassinated? Vijay Prashad is an historian, director of Tri-Continental, Institute for Social Research, and editor of Word Books. This year saw the publication of a special 15th anniversary edition of his award-winning book, The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World. To mark the occasion, we are presenting excerpts of what was an extended two-part 2007 interview I conducted with Vijay shortly after the release of The Darker Nations. I began by asking Vijay if he views the third world as a place, as a set of
1: locations around the globe. Well, the third world was not really a place. The concept third world comes in the 1950s, and it refers to this massive upsurge in Asia, Africa, and Latin America, this upsurge of people demanding a different kind of world, uh, both for themselves, for their countries, but also for the planet. And the demand that they made wasn't an un specific demand. It was specific. There were some actual uh, things that they wanted to see changed. The combination of all those things that they wanted changed was the project called The Third World. Give us a uh, thumbnail sampling of the
0: nations that broke free from their colonizers in the period of the uh, 1940s through 1970s, just so people have an idea of what we're talking about.
1: Oh, it's a mass of countries. Uh, you know, the early countries that had influence in the uh, Third World Project was, of course, India in 1947 and Pakistan in 47, Indonesia in 1948. In 1952... The Egyptians uh, had a revolution led by some very dynamic uh, military officers, among whom was the most charismatic Gamal Abdul Nasser. Then in 1957, Ghana, led by the movement uh, under the leadership of Kwame Nkrumah, breaks free from British colonialism. And in 59, you have, of course, this extraordinary event take place in Cuba, when from the hills of Cuba. Uh, into the city of Havana come Fidel Castro and his platoons. So in the span from 1947 to 1959, there's a seismic shift in the world uh, of Asia, Africa, and Latin America as these countries break free from colonial dominion and hope to create a new kind of, of world for themselves. You know, And again, it's not just a world for Cuba, India, Egypt, uh, Ghana, but a new kind of world for everybody, including the Europeans.
0: What was the primary forum in which it was hoped the Third World Agenda could be approved and implemented?
1: Well, it's interesting. It, you know, the story begins in 1928 in Brussels. Where many of the then anti colonial movement leaders, you know, they were nowhere near being leaders of nations, but the leaders of anti colonial movements uh, gathered. And at Brussels, they sketched out, uh, you know, some dreams. It was literally a sketch of how they thought the world's problems could be addressed. Much later, after several of the countries had won independence, in uh, Bandung, Indonesia, in 1955, Twenty-nine countries from Africa and Asia uh, gathered together for a very important conference, the Bandung Conference, the African-Asian Conference, where they actually created a program of demands. That program of demands remained fairly stable from the 1955 Bandung Conference to the 1983 conference in New Delhi of the non-aligned movement. You know, they created some demands but demands demands for peace demands for you know better economic management demands for a more just world etc demands don't just walk on their own they need legs and the legs that this third world project uh, began to rely upon are the legs that they built were the legs of the United Nations institutions. So it wasn't the United Nations as the Security Council. I mean, one of the problems with the current understanding of the UN, you know, because of the Iraq war, because of of, uh, the way, uh, you know, the 1990 sanctions regimes went, et cetera, is we've come to see the United Nations as the Security Council. And actually, to reduce it further, we've come to see the United Nations as the five permanent members of the Security Council because they have a veto power. But actually, the United Nations is also the General Assembly, you know, which is the parliament of the world. The United Nations is also UNESCO, the uh, UN Education and Social and Cultural Organization. The United Nations is also the Food and Agricultural Organization, it's also UNCTAD, which was one of the main institutions of the Third World, the UN Conference on Trade and Disarmament. So, and development uh, and development you know and development exactly and of course uh, the you mustn't forget the um, uh, organization for disarmament as well uh, you know uh, that was created in 1957 the international agency for atomic energy was created in 1957 by the impetus of this third world project so the legs that they created to carry forward the third world project was to be the institutions of the united nations
0: Can you give us a little more detail about the main points of the third world platform?
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, like any uh, conference or any series of conferences, 55 was Bandung, 1961 was a non-aligned movement which cemented and brought together Latin America into the umbrella of the third world. Like all conferences, there were many, 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 many different demands. You know, there were general demands, specific demands, demands bound by time, you know, something that had to be addressed immediately, a protest of some kind, etc. But if you take the main demands, there are three main points as far as I see them. The first point uh, they understood had to be peace, in that, you know, we don't live in that world any longer, but right after the United States dropped the two bombs in uh, Japan, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, there was an expectation that nuclear annihilation was around the corner. And, you know, when uh, the meeting took place at Belgrade in 1961 to found the non-aligned movement, uh, you know, where the great countries of Ghana, Yugoslavia, India, Egypt, Indonesia took leadership, and Cuba played a huge role at the non-aligned meeting in 1961, Uh, when they met in uh, Belgrade to found this great institution, the Berlin blockade was going on. And the United States and the Soviets had left the discussion table. And you know, it was a tense moment, so they understood that the first thing that needed to happen was peace. If peace wasn't the principal plank of the Third World Project, the whole thing is gone. So from Belgrade, for instance, two of the major leaders went to Moscow, two of them went to Washington, D.C., carrying appeal, appeal for peace, saying, come to the table, you have to come to the table. And they had a moral agenda. You know, you see it at the United Nations in the General Assembly. The Burmese leader, you, youthant would stand, you knew would stand, both of them. Later he would become General Secretary of the United Nations, Youthant. They would stand there and talk about the moral right of the third world, on the two nuclear powered countries. From Cambodia, uh, Prince Siddhartha uh, Naradu would come and he would say, you know, there is a moral uh, imperative, etc. So peace was won. Which, sec-
0: which makes sense, of course, given that the third world nations could not physically coerce the USSR and the US to disarm.
1: Yes, exactly. I mean, you know, uh, and they understood that. They said, we don't have, you know, uh, Sukarno in his speech at Bandung said, we don't have the ranks of jet planes. You know, we don't have uh, bombers. We don't have this uh, incredible armature needed to take you on. And, I mean, if they could say that in the 1940s and 50s, you know, you can imagine the situation today. You know, nobody can take on the U.S. Air Force, I mean, in the skies. Uh, Because that's how the bombs would have been delivered at that time. So they said, look, we can't take you on on this. All we have is we have this moral thing. We have two-thirds of the world's people with us, and we don't want to be you know, hostage to nuclear threats, etc. So peace was number one. The second constellation of demands was around what you could consider bread. And this had to do with rearranging the economy. The countries that come to the Third World Project had several disadvantages. Of course, they were colonized. Many of them had been rendered into producers of raw materials. And that to one raw material, you know, a colony would be created, Cuba, for instance, and the Spanish would say, Cuba, sugarcane. That's it. You know, we don't need to diversify. This is a sugarcane producer. Maybe we'll the extract of sugarcane will produce rum for us. Basically, it's sugarcane. They would say, okay, you know, um, parts of, a bit of Ghana. That's all going to produce cocoa. Or you know, some other, northern Bihar will produce indigo. Southern Bihar will produce coal. You had single commodity producing regions. Now, what this does is they produce raw materials. The raw materials are shipped off to Europe and the United States created into, uh, you know, uh, finished goods and then sold back to the countries that became the Third World Project. A major handicap. Second handicap, that during World War II, the Nazis and the Americans and British invented synthetic things like, you know, synthetic cloth, synthetic uh, sugars, also beet sugar, synthetic dyes, plastics. Many of these products had rendered superfluous the main commodities of the colonial era. You know, sugarcane, for instance, was rendered uh, less important because of the developments in beet sugar, much cheaper to produce. Jute uh, and sisal and hemp and things like that were wiped out by plastic. So the colonial crops were really rendered anachronistic. These were some of the starting problems. The third starting economic problem was that this massive region of the world, Asia, Africa, Latin America, was beginning without an enormous sum of capital. They had to rely on the capital sums stolen by Europe and North America. So how do you deal with this economic problem? Well, they came up with some very, very interesting uh, ideas, and I'll just share two of them quickly. One of them uh, was the idea of import substitution industrialization, a concept developed simultaneously by an American economist, Hans Singer and an uh, economist from Argentina, uh, Raul Prebich. The idea is quite simple. If India imports toothpaste from Britain, uh, you know, why can't India, a huge country, produce its own toothpaste? Well, the way to do that is you, you introduce high tariffs. You say that the cost of importing toothpaste is now tripled or quadrupled. And then you provide subsidies to domestic capitalists or to the state to start producing toothpaste. Now, that'll produce a chemical industry. It'll produce an advertising industry. So you diversify the economy by import substitution industrialization. That was one strategy. A recipe for economic self-sufficiency. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Some kind of self-sufficiency and trade, but trade based on the construction of national economies, the needs of the people, etc. The second strategy they had was a very unique strategy, and this is actually completely forgotten. The idea was that we produce single commodities, bauxite you know, or sugarcane or whatever, and there are these major multinational corporations that bottleneck prices. So there are four places in the world that produce bauxite. The multinational aluminum firms will basically say, look, this is the price. If you don't sell us bauxite at this price, we're going from Jamaica to Australia or to Brazil. So there was a race to the bottom for pricing of raw materials. So what the Third World Project said, look, if they can make cartels of buyers, we can make cartels of sellers. So let's have a bauxite cartel. Let's have a cocoa cartel. Let's have a you know an oil cartel. And, of course, the only Third World cartel that succeeded was OPEC, founded in 1960 in Baghdad, a direct child of the Third World Project. So the second dimension was essentially bread or the economic reconstruction which in 1973 at the Algiers meeting of the non-aligned movement they called the new international economic order the third set of you know of suggestions one was this idea of peace one was the idea of bread or economic the third one which is important is justice and what they meant by that is listen pals you know in London Washington Paris etc we know you're smart we know you're free. We know you have the enlightenment. But guess what? We have resources. We have resilient cultures. We have cultures that have equality within them. We are quite capable of borrowing from you, of borrowing from each other, and having integrity when we develop ourselves. So don't come around saying you're Anglicized or you're you know, Americanized, etc. We're going to do this development game the way we want to. You know, we know we have patriarchal families. We're going to deal with that because we have resilient traditions of women's struggle and different kinds of ideas of family, and we're going to deal with all that. And the interesting marker of that was things like the Afro-Asian Women's Conference held in Cairo in 1961, where they said, we don't need humanitarian intervention. We have this covered. We know how to fight on a national liberation platform and on a women's right platform. So the three pieces, basically, peace, bread, and justice.
0: Vijay Prashad is his name. He spoke with me after the publication of his book, The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World, which came out earlier this year in a 15th anniversary edition from The New Press. You are listening to Against the Grain. My name is C.S. Song. And back in 2007, I presented an extended two-part interview with Vijay Prashad about The Darker Nations. Here is more from that interview. In talking about third-world nationalism, VJ, you write two things. You write about the extent to which anti-colonial nationalism, third-world nationalism, relied on or rejected defining the nation in cultural or racial or religious terms, and on the other hand, you refer to third-world nationalism as internationalist nationalism, and I think these two things are related. Tell us about that.
1: Absolutely. You know, uh, it's fascinating when you think of Indonesia and India as just two examples. Both Indonesia and India share the same cultural motto. And the motto is not out of many one, you know, which is the motto of the United States, but unity and diversity. Where, look, the point is, you know, there are 500 communities inside this state formation. The furthest thing for us to do is to try to homogenize them culturally. I mean, in India there are 27 recognized languages you know there may Amazing. be o- there may be over 300 distinct languages spoken in the indian republic today so to say look you know we're going to hom- everybody has to speak one language is counterproductive you're going to actually go against the sense of people's cultural dignity so what united people uh, during the colonial period what united them was not so much that they had a culture in common You know, if you go back to the 19th century, uh, to France, to other places, you'll see that the uniting myth of Mazzini in Italy, of the French in the 19th, the French state in the 19th century, was that they were French people, they were Italian people, and they needed to be reunited. I mean, that was the term used in Italy. The reuniting of, unification of Italy was a reunification of Italy under Victor Emmanuel. Or in Germany, you know, when the different um, small baronies were brought together, it was understood as the bringing together of the German people. They were already German. They now needed to come into a common national, uh, you know, uh, platform. Hitler's Anschluss was to unite, the Anschluss, to unite the German people. In the colonies, this was an absurd idea because there was just so much diversity of population of cultural uh, you know habits etc so what united people in their struggle against colonialism was the struggle against colonialism i mean from the mid 19th century right out to the 1940s this is a very long culture making process and the culture was a culture of anti colonialism You know, in India, for instance, it was wearing a certain dress, a certain homespun cotton cloth to say we don't buy foreign cloth. Certain kinds of caps, certain, you know, gestures, certain way of walking. New cultures of defiance were produced. In Algeria, you get the same thing. You get unities produced in that moment. So their nationalism was a nationalism which was simultaneously secular, in that it wasn't marked by religion, it wasn't marked by one kind of language or some kind of cultural overlay, and it was, to some extent, socialist. In other words, the new nation that was born had to deliver to its population. It was not enough to say, look, pals, you know, we're all French now, so let's learn French and let's bond together. The thing was, we have taken power because we can deliver goods that we told you the colony can't. In India, for instance, one of the uniting features of the anti-colonial movement was that the British Raj was draining the Indian economy. That was the phrase they used, it's the drain. So, If the Brits were draining the Indian economy, the new Indian government could not continue to drain. It was a socialistic uh, piece was there inside the nationalism. The piece of the anti-colonial nationalism was somewhat secular, it was somewhat socialist. And, you know, when I use these words, I use them in the broadest possible way. Because many of them were anti-communist. Many of these people also had some kind of cultural visions of their own. But broadly, it was ecumenical. It was open to all kinds of features. They were multinational nations. Now, at the same time, you get this at Bandung very strongly. At the same time, they understood that, you know, it's one thing to be a new nation. It's another to be chauvinistic. I mean, they recognized a couple of things. One is that from the 20s onwards, there was talk of the renaissance of continents. There was talk of, in 1937, the Nigerian author writes about African renaissance, the name of his book. Uh, Nehru gives speeches in the 20s onwards saying this is a renaissance in Asia. You hear the same things from the right and the left in Japan, saying this is a renaissance in Japan, in Asia. Uh, The co-prosperity sphere idea is from the right, but there was a left-wing version as well. Mao also talks about Asia rising. So uh, there was one understanding of a continental solidarity. There's this new anti-colonial nation, and then there's continental solidarity. And then beyond that, why was the Bandung conference the conference of Afro-Asia? It was beyond just Asia. It was people who have come out of colonialism have something to share with each other. They could trade together. They have cultural matters. They need to, they need to fight against chauvinism. That was the principle of internationalist nationalism.
0: Let's zoom in, VJ, on Algeria, because there are many lessons to be learned, as you indicate, in this book. And there is something to be said about the extent to which the National Liberation Project after it took power, after it evicted the French colonial power in 1962, the extent to which it went about mobilizing the people, mobilizing the energy of the population, giving the people in Algeria the opportunity to participate in the building of a new Algeria. What happened when the national liberation movement took power?
1: Well yes you know I, I have been reading about Algeria for very many years I have a box at home which is uh, like my Algeria box I have <laughs> clippings in there if I find a new picture of Ben Bella I put it in there you know first president mm-hmm. uh, yes I mean I Algeria is a, it's beautiful because it is tragic and what has happened to that great country it's very very depressing in 1954, when the Algerian uh, FLN, the you know the great National Liberation Party of the Algerians, the Front uh, of National Liberation comes and fires the first shots, saying we are going to evict the French, you know it was bravado. Uh, these were people who had been troops in Europe, uh, including Ahmed Ben Bella, one of the early leaders. He had fought, he had been decorated by Charles de Gaulle, you know. These were fellows who went and helped the French evict the Nazis. They come back and they say, where's our freedom? Where's our independence? The same thing with African-Americans coming back and saying, where's our, why Jim Crow? I just fought a war to evict Jim Crow in Europe, etc." So very similar thing. They come back and they start this amazing struggle. First constitutional, that doesn't work. They start an armed struggle. Now, I highly recommend the movie Battle of Algiers. Uh, very, very evocative, brilliant movie. It tells you about the last stage of the struggle. They take power, as you say, early 60s. Now, there are two different problems that occur. One is objective and one is subjective. The objective problem is faced by almost all anti-colonial struggles. What happens is, while they were battling the colonial enemy... It was necessary for all parties to unite in what they call the mass party. It was very necessary. You couldn't have six different parties uh, because they were, in the case of Algeria, fighting a military struggle. So all the more reason for political and military
0: unity. These are like different social classes, people of different incomes and wealth and religion.
1: And different political views. Liberals, Marxists, Trotskyites, nationalists, Islamists, everybody came under the FLN. You know, and in some ways, they were also forced under the FLN when the FLN became popular. In India, for instance, it was the Indian National Congress. I mean, this phenomena of the mass party in Ghana, the Gold Coast Convention Party, you know, all people come into it. It becomes the mass front against colonialism. So that form of the mass party is adequate in the fight against the colonial enemy. The day you take power, you see, the mass party, heavily organized, takes, seizes control of the state, and now says, we're in charge. But the problem is when you're governing, you don't want one party. You want to have the different class interests freed so there can be some rattling around, so that you can actually politically deal with the different classes. What happened was they tried to administer a political problem. You know, they took power of all features of society and gradually tried to strengthen the hand of the president, and when there were any class tensions, they tried to deal with it administratively. They jailed people, or they, you know, expelled them from their jobs, etc. They didn't deal with it politically. They didn't go to the people and say, look, here is what we believe. Here is the way to go. In fact, they demobilized the population, and this is the subjective element. The objective element, look, this is a problem they all face. The mass party comes to power, it becomes a one-party state. Many African countries, in fact, uh, institutionalized the one-party state into the constitution. But at any rate, the subjective part is that once you've come into power, even if you're a mass party, like, for instance, in Cuba, where all parties went behind the Castro regime, in Cuba they didn't demobilize the population. In fact, they continued to mobilize them. Platoons were created anew, named after heroes of the revolution, to basically do the military work. You know, after the Bay of Pigs, that was a real, uh, you know, reminder to the Castro leadership that you need to ha- allow people to be ready, armed, and ready to defend the revolution. In Algeria, they demobilized the population. Now, what that did was it isolated Ben Bella, and it strengthened the old social classes, the old elites who made an alliance with the military, they come out and knock off the president, and there's military rule. I mean, the reason there's military rule in so many of the countries that follow the Third World Project has nothing to do principally with these countries being prone to military or mili- you know, authoritarianism. It's precisely because there was a subjective mishandling of an objective problem, the problem of the mass party when it takes power.
0: That's the voice of Vijay Prashad, director of Tricontinental, Institute for Social Research, chief correspondent for Globetrotter, and author of 30 books. I'm CS, the program is Against the Grain, and we return to more of my 2007 interview with Vijay about The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World, which this year came out in a 15th anniversary edition. Well, there's also the issue of a often a devastated economy when colonial rule ends. So, for example, in the late 1960s, we have the nation of Tanzania in Africa, which tried to explicitly build a socialist state using the idea of the socialist village as the unit of change, the rural uh, unit of change. What problems did Tanzania encounter? Maybe this is emblematic of other nations as well in terms of how to install socialism in a hurry, given the economic problems.
1: You know, Julius Niere, who is the leader of the Tanzanian uh, National Liberation Movement, is in a way the grandfather of uh, African socialism in the modern period. And, you know, he understood, he was a very urbane, thoughtful, studied man, understood the problems of Tanzania. Tanzania had some special problems and some general problems. The special problems were that uh, for many, many hundreds of years, the peasantry was relatively uh, anarchistic. You know, there was there were not much collective work done, etc., and they lived quite spread out. In fact, the Germans and the British had tried to collectivize and make villages of the peasantry, uh, and that had failed in an earlier time. So that was a special issue with uh, T- Tanganyika and then Tanzania. But the common element is that you have an economy that's relatively battered from lack of capital a lack of productivity in agriculture uh, you know a very low level of infrastructural development etc so what do you do so you have neary coming in with some ideas and it feels under pressure from imperial powers etc and he comes up with some interesting ideas. You know, the idea of, first, villagization. You have people come into villages, and they do political campaigns. The Arusha Declaration, you know, they at the beautiful town in the uh, bottom of Mount Kilimanjaro, they meet and they say, we have to bring people into villages. That doesn't work. People are confused. Then they give seeds to plant certain things. That's confused. Now, instead of going to the people and conducting a political campaign... What happens is, they say, this is how it has to happen. And once again, there was an attempt to make an administrative solution. Previously, I had said there was an administrative solution to a political problem. Now there's an administrative solution to an economic problem. So they would say, the police has to go in and push people into living in Ujamaa villages. Now people, you know, also party to rumor, hearing that their land was going to be seized or, you know, etc. Uh, there was an unhappiness that the police was just coming in and knocking down their houses and saying, You have to move there. We've built better houses for you. Well, how do I know they're better houses? And why should I leave my ancestral land? So the politics of what was going on was not very well done, crafted. And, you know, Nieri himself uh, was heartbroken at the end of this dynamic and fully understood the mistakes that were made. So, yes, socialism in a hurry is always a mistake. I mean, uh, you know, they found that in the Russian period, you can't just uh, improve the forces of production. Uh, the forces of production don't live extra people. You know, in China, I think they're experiencing that now. You may build the best freeways, six-lane highways, you may build the best airports, of factories, but unless people are willing to go along with the project politically, they are going to you know, lose faith, new values are going to come in, values of upward mobility, etc. And this was a problem. The politics of controlling the message was not there in the 50s and 60s. And this was an inbuilt flaw. But this flaw could have been overcome.
0: There must have been arguments, and there certainly were arguments put forward by these new national liberation parties in power in these post-colonial states. In favor of the establishment of the centralized state structures, the demobilization of the population, one would be, well, look, imperialism will make inroads into our population if the state is weak. Therefore, we need a strong state. We need a strong central party. The second thing is that with these devastated economies, The state, the leaders might argue, look, if we don't all get together on the same page and we tell you what to do and we all follow the same program, there's no way we can catch up. There's no way our economy can move forward. And until our economy is healthy and maybe even normal by other standards, we can't make progress. How... Do you assess those two arguments?
1: Well, uh, you know the first argument is uh, made uh, uh, rendered wrong by the Algerian example in that you can when you say strengthen the state what you mean is you make the state top heavy and then the military can just kill the principal leaders and take power. So you don't actually have a strong state what you end up having is you have centralized power in a very small number of people. It's a very dangerous situation. The second question of everybody has to be on the same page But, you know, the masses of people also have dreams, and they have imaginations, and unless you're able to stake their imaginations with you, unless you are an educator, I mean, this was the genius of Fidel Castro, you know, people must understand that when Castro would speak for long periods of time, he was the great national educator, he was bringing people along with him, he was, he, he often talked about the problems and mistakes. It's by talking about errors that you, uh, you know, people can understand what you're doing. If, you know, Amilcar Cabral, the great uh, man from uh, Guinea-Bissau, in one of his speeches at the Non-Aligned Movement said, tell no lies, claim no easy victories. It's very important for people to grasp and to become part of your movement. They need to know the constraints and mistakes that you've made. There were people brought in, as you
0: said, to the unified national liberation fronts while the anti-colonial struggles were happening, who were rich, who were merchants, who were industrialists, who were technical experts. The bourgeoisie was brought into many national liberation struggles. The struggle wins. The movement takes power. Now, what tended to happen in terms of alliances between the national liberation state and the bourgeoisie, and what impact did that have on the Third World Project?
1: Well, in many places, the new states that came into being decided to hold in their hands the principal features of the economy—electrification— credit and banks, etc., those would be held in state control. But everything else they, you know, gave out or they allowed to remain in private hands, including, you know, industry. So industrial bourgeoisies uh, benefited by, and they supported in many cases, the project of uh, import substitution industrialization because it allowed them to withstand pressure from imperialism as well. You know, in many cases, the national bourgeoisie was a national bourgeoisie. It was patriotic to the nation because it benefited. Now, you know, there was a problem in import substitution industrialization. It didn't talk about equity. It talked about growth. You wanted to strengthen, to diversify the economy, build up the economy. So you had a new class being created and that class was strong, and it provided support to the regime. You know, in different, some places more, some places less. Obviously, less in Cuba, more in India. The national bourgeoisie much stronger in India than in Cuba, or in, you know, Bolivia even, etc. There were some oligarchs there. Anyway, so what you see is, you see this class getting confident. And from the 1950s to the 1970s, this class remained a fairly loyal uh, a fairly patriotic actor in the national liberation struggle. From the 1970s onwards, globally, you see shifts in these classes' allegiances. Uh, firstly, it's a generational shift. You've had the children now of the original industrialists uh, being born. They had no experience of colonialism. They were raised in these states. They were raised with uh, you know, the laws and the, the laws that protected them and that constrained them what they saw was not the laws that protected them. They saw the laws that constrained them. Because by the 1970s, under pressure from International Monetary Fund, under pressure from the World Bank, the laws that protected the national bourgeoisie, in other words, tariff barriers, etc., had started to be dismantled. And that's a, I go into this at great length on the debt crisis, on why countries had to listen to the International Monetary Fund, etc., as the protections, uh, you know, that sheltered the national, began to wither, as those protections came down, the national bourgeoisie just saw import substitution industrialization as a set of constraints, licenses that had to be gotten, you know, they had to go and uh, talk to bureaucrats about production quotas, etc. So they saw, they began to see the training wheels of import substitution as shackles and they wanted to remove the shackles. So you see class cleavages opening within these nations quite dramatically in the 1970s. On this issue of the emerging elites
0: within the post-colonial powers, and what they prefer, what they want to do to improve their own social standing, what they see as the proper way in which their nation should be heading economically and to some degree politically, We come to the 1970s and 1980s, and you're right that the non-aligned movement that gathered in 1983 in New Delhi, India, for the seventh non-aligned movement summit, was in transition because an internal rift had opened up in the 1970s, hadn't been healed by New Delhi, and this divide was represented by Cuba's Fidel Castro on one hand, and the Deputy Prime Minister of Singapore on
1: the other. What was this rift, this divide about? Yes, this was a fascinating thing to discover. I mean, I was there in New Delhi in 1983. Uh, Delhi in 1983 was extraordinary. We had just had the Asiat Games, you know, the great Olympics of Asia had been held there. In 1983, India won the World Cup in cricket for the first time. It was an extraordinary year. And then the nations descend on New Delhi. And Castro came. I mean, you know, he was front page. He is a most charismatic, beloved person. Even people who are ambivalent about the Cuban revolution somehow find Castro to be a kind of avuncular, the great teacher, you know. Mm. So Castro comes. Now, by the 1983 non-aligned meeting... Something had become clear, the debt crisis had been extraordinary. In 1982, Mexico had defaulted. You know, Mexico had defaulted. You know, it was extraordinary. An oil-producing country was unable to pay back, uh, you know, its short-term. It went bankrupt, essentially. And, you know, what had happened from the 70s onward was the International Monetary Fund, which had been set up in the 40s, to give short-term loans, no questions asked, in order to prevent a country from going into, you know, freefall, it had been set up for that. No question, you need a little loan to get you through. Here's the money, pay the your debt, and your, you know, it's a short-term uh, loan. The, the IMF, under pressure from the Europeans and the US, had said. Look, if a country is in a problem, short-term problem, we can have, uh, make long-term demands on them. In other words, we can say, you need um, currency to tide you over for two years. We think there are some structural problems that you need to address. And they create a program called the Structural Adjustment Program. What Castro began to argue from the 70s onward was that, look, you know, uh, Third World Project, all of us are in some sense in debt, What we need to do is we need to go on debt strike together. We need to confront the debt crisis politically. We need to say we refuse to pay back debt servicing. In fact, we refuse to pay this debt back. We want you to forgive this debt. This debt is engineered by your bankers. It's not something that we deserve to carry. He said it's a political thing. It's not an economic thing. There's no technical solution to the debt crisis. We must go on strike. That was Castro's view. On the other side, a very clever man, Sinatambi Rajaratnam, uh, Deputy Prime Minister of Singapore, one of the founders of Singapore with Lee Kuan Yew of the uh, PAN, the People's Action Party, PAP, in 1959 when they took power, etc. A very interesting story Singapore is. At any rate, Sinatambi Rajaratnam represented the other side. And Singapore was the country. You know, when we talk of the tigers, everybody says Hong Kong, Taiwan. You don't recognize it. Singapore was the success story. Mm. Because in the early 70s, Rajan Ratnam had given an important speech where it was called global cities, you know, long before the term was used in Europe, etc. And what Rajan Ratnam said is, you know, the thing is that finance is going to be freed. We can see that. It's coming. So we need to create certain financial laws for Singapore to take advantage of that. Second, we know trade is going to be big. What we need to do is we need to get some loans in quickly and make a big port. So Singapore reorganized their financial laws to allow money to come in and they disallowed it to leave very quickly. Uh, you know, they allowed money to come in, go out, etc. But they regulated a little bit. And secondly, they built the second largest port after Rotterdam. It was I an mean, incredible undertaking for Singapore to reconstruct itself, so they were prepared. You know, the storm was coming, the financialization storm was coming, and Singapore built the perfect ship. They built Noah's Ark. Everybody else was sinking, they were rising. That's Vijay Prashad speaking
0: with me in studio shortly after the release of his book, The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World. A 15th anniversary edition of the book was published this year. I'm C.S. Song. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Here's more of that interview. They, in essence, uh, accepted the economic logic of the capitalist status quo. Exactly. They
1: accepted the logic and they forecast it. They saw that it was coming. They were early. They were ahead of the curve. So when Rajaratnam starts to say there's a technical solution to the debt crisis, and we have it, and the technical solution is you accede to neoliberal logics, people looked at him and said, "Well, look, you're two islands. Here's Cuba, broke, unable to diversify its economy. Here's Singapore, it's flying." I mean, and so you have this new bourgeoisie that's eager to break out of the shackles that it sees itself encased in. They admire Castro. So Castro at Delhi got the standing ovation, but they went with Rajaratnam.
0: And when they went with him, the Singaporean prime minister, that ushered in, would you say, a new era in the third
1: world project or perhaps even did something very damaging to it? I consider that to be the end of the third world project, and a new project opened up. In other words, it's from the mid-1980s that you start hearing things like public-private partnership, you start hearing language like benchmarks, you know. Uh, consultancy firms from uh, New York City will produce a whole new vocabulary which enter the fora of the non-aligned movement. I mean, it's inconceivable. The movement in Belgrade in 61, where they talked about the principal problem is U.S. imperialism and the bombing of Vietnam, by, you know, the late 80s uh, in Harare, Zimbabwe, etc., they'll be talking about things like public-private partnership, They'll be talking about things like performance evaluations. They'll be talking about proper management of debt service. I mean, this new vocabulary comes in, new technocrats come in and take charge, and a new set of problems and prospects opens up. So my consideration is that by the 1980s, the Third World Project was assassinated. As this
0: paradigm, Vijay, of IMF directed globalization came to dominate what happened to the post-colonial nations hopes for economic sovereignty because as you've said two of the pillars of the third world platform were economic independence or self-sufficiency there was also secular democracy that was a big part of uh, what third world agenda was so what happened to economic sovereignty And then what other kinds of forces came into play that further, as you write, assassinated the Third World Project?
1: Yes. So the first is quite simple to see now. You know, there's neoliberalism, there's an exceeding to the rule of capital, etc. And so economic sovereignty becomes something that appears anachronistic. I mean, people who talk about making a national economy, etc., are laughed out of court. You know, they are told, you know, the real game is the world is flat. And, you know, you need to have uh, free market economies, etc. So that's a serious problem. But uh, that produces another problem. You see, one of the things that the anti-colonial nationalism produced was it coupled, as I said, socialism and secularism. In other words, you know, we are going to unite based on an antipathy to imperialism, and there are some basic goods we're going to provide you. Now, if you stop providing the basic goods, what's the legitimacy of the new state what's the legitimacy of the ruling class it's saying now we're not going to deal with your hunger we're not going to deal with your unemployment we're not going to deal with your lack of water so if you're not going to deal with all those things why should we you know look up to you or why should we live together this is not a society any longer this is a war of one against all Well, uh, new sets of identities emerge, and these are not uh, out of vapor. They don't come out of the body. These are produced. And I uh, go to Mecca for this, and I track the reviving uh, by the Saudi regime with help from and encouragement from the United States. But pretty much the Saudis do this with old social classes in other countries with Muslim populations. They revive the World Muslim League. And in 1962, there's a conference held in Saudi Arabia. A lot of money is thrown in. They create books, pamphlets, etc. Go all over the world saying that the combination of third world nationalism and communism, that's evil. And what we need is we need Islamic government. Parallel to that is the creation of a new idea of a Hindu Hindu ness in politics. You have the revival of all kinds of evangelical fundamentalisms, not just in the United States, but all over the place. Tribalisms return. I mean, uh, you know, Mobutu, who comes to power as Joseph Mobutu, will refashion himself as Mobutu Seko and say, I am uh, the man of the Congo, you know, not uh, this Frenchified African. You know, so different kinds of cultural forms of nationalism enter. And this combination, therefore, of uh, cultural nationalism with uh, free market lack of concern for people's basic needs shatters, you know, uh, the last remaining pieces of the Third World Project.
0: In the 1960s and into the 1970s, you write that the World Muslim League played a marginal role. Again, this is the organization formed in Saudi Arabia in the year 1962.
1: What happened to make the league a major player? What occurs simultaneously with uh, this neoliberalism is that in Pakistan, for instance, in the 1970s, the state will start to back away from producing education because the IMF says education is a private function. The state shouldn't, you know, waste its energy uh, doing schools. So it pulls away. It pulls away from healthcare, And into that emptiness comes the World Muslim League. Into that emptiness comes uh, the Bin Ladens, comes uh, the, you know, uh, different characters from uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, etc. to fill, to open schools, madrasas. And they, at one level, produce a very important function. When the state doesn't educate young people, they come in to educate young people. I mean, in in a way, the structural adjustment program produces the space, the opening for cultural nationalism to flourish. And you see this across the countries that used to be a part of the Third World Project, including Yugoslavia, where the breakup of Yugoslavia, one of the direct uh, reasons is the IMF policies in the 1990s. It's well studied by Diane Johnson. To what extent did the U.S. government support these kinds of
0: forces, these anti-Third World nationalist forces, these anti-socialist, anti-communist forces that were pushing this kind of cultural nationalism, these tribalisms and racialisms that you find so harmful to the Third World Project?
1: Oh, the evidence is, uh, you know, I wish the evidence was clearer. But we have sufficient evidence, circumstantial evidence and statements of support uh, to show that the United States, uh, you know, encouraged and pushed along these anti-communist tendencies, particularly in the Arab world, but not only. I mean, if you just look in the southern part of Africa, the organizations that the United States uh, supported in the Angolan War, for instance, I mean, we supported some of the most repellent political forces in Africa in the 1970s and 80s, including the apartheid regime. Uh, So, you know, there was verbal support for the most repellent forces, uh, including the Ba'ath Party in Iraq, which uh, by the admission of Hanan Batatu, who interviewed uh, the scholar, interviewed several, several people in the Ba'ath, they told him we came to power on an American train. I mean, that's the line they use. They came to power. The Americans didn't do it. You know, in other words, the CIA doesn't create these things it just takes advantage of opportunities and pushed forward some of the worst characters you know we supported uh, the most brutal fellows in afghanistan gulbuddin hakmatyar who as a student leader supported on the CIA payroll was walking around Kabul University, the engineering division, throwing acid in the face of young girls who had come to study engineering. And he was on the CIA payroll. So that stuff is already documented. We supported repellent people. The worst side of history, the dark side of history, was supported by the U.S. government and contributed directly, therefore, to the collapse of the Third World Project.
0: And those were excerpts of an interview with Vijay Prashad about The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World, when it first came out. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, And you can follow us on Twitter, at Radio Against.